Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. This week we're in Empires Volume 4, which is a study through the book of Romans. Enjoy the message. So I'm going to start this morning by talking a little bit about uh, one of my, it's one of my most frustrating and yet at the same time uh, funniest moments in my parenting, okay? Like we, we went to Disney World a couple months back and when, we, when you land the plane and you're, and you're at the hotel, like the hotel pools are really, really nice, okay? Like they have the water parks over there, but for some reason the pools are like top tier. So you go to the pool and you're like, the kids are excited. You know, it, it's nighttime, but it's still like 80 degrees outside, so it's the perfect way to end the day after sitting in the plane all day. And if you've ever seen the, the, the pool area, they have like a lifeguard in the, in the swimming area, but the, the water slides are all like unmanned. And so for whatever reason, the water slide at this pool, at the moment that we got there, there was like this little trickle of water. It wasn't like really working properly. And so we told the kids like, hey, we're going we're gonna to get settled down. We're going to, you know, put on sunscreen. We're going to get ready to go swimming. But the water slide doesn't look like it's working. So just, just hang on a second and we'll, we'll get to it later. Uh, so somewhere between finding towels, applying sunscreen to one of our four kids, and making sure we've had our spot picked out on the pool deck, my five-year-old Charlie goes missing. And so there's this moment of panic where we're at a pool, and I look at Hannah, and she looks at me, and it's just that nonverbal, what are we going to do, right? Like, so she grabs our youngest, and she books it thinking maybe we left him behind somewhere. My oldest goes looking in the little kid's splash area, you know, zero depth area, maybe he's wandering around. So I'm standing there, and it's me and my seven-year-old, and the only other option is literally the worst option in front of me. It's the pool. So there's all these little kids and their little yellow life jackets swimming around in the pool, and I'm walking around the deck trying to make sure he's not just splashing away, and all of a sudden, I turn over to the water slide, and I tell you, it was the funniest and most infuriating moment of my entire life. I see my five-year-old on a practically defunct water slide, paddling his way down. And I'm just like, of course it's my kid. Of course it's my five-year-old who is so excited to play that he didn't heed the warning that his mother and I gave him to say, just wait, it's not working. And so, end of the story, he was fine. I caught him. I told him, you got to stay by us. But, but the moral of the story is we warned him. We warned him that the water slide wasn't what it was supposed to be. It, didn't, it wasn't what it appeared. The water slide was not this gushing river of fun. The water slide was a trickle of dog paddling, right? Like, and, and sometimes, sometimes when, when we look at God's word, we see words of love. We see words of affirmation. We see words of encouragement. Because when you're in a loving relationship with somebody, you want to encourage them. You want to build them up. You want to tell them how much you love them. But sometimes... Those same, the same affection, the same intention, the same message of love gets communicated through a warning, okay? And so this morning, it's literally going to be like a, like a 1B to the sermon I preached last week, or two weeks ago, because uh, we covered the first 16 verses in Romans chapter 16, and today we're going to look at the same heart of the Apostle Paul for this amazing church in Rome, the same heart of the Apostle Paul who highlighted the incredible unity, the incredible affection, and the incredible people of this church that he dearly loved. But it's the, this, this message of love is going to come from a different vein. This message of love is going to come from the vein of warning. 
The vein that says, I care about your safety. I care about your security. And I care enough about you to warn you of dangers that are to come. We see, uh, we, we see this year, um, or we see Paul's warning to the church in Rome, uh, and there's little doubt in my mind that this warning that Paul offers us this morning comes from the same heart that Jesus shared with people as he warned them of the dangers that, would ulti- that could ultimately derail their faith. And so since it's the nature of love to warn and, and secure and guide people, uh, we're, we're going to look at that today. So our first point this morning, uh, as you turn to Romans 16, we're going to start in uh, verse 17, if you're following along, either in your Bibles or on your app. Uh, The first point here is a warning against division. So as we dive into Romans 16, verse 17, uh, I want to highlight two things that seem contradictory, that seem like they wouldn't necessarily go hand in hand, right? Because uh, two weeks ago we talked about the amazing unity in the church, But today we're going to talk about uh, something that may appear on its surface to contradict Paul's heart for unity within the church, okay? So, um, but I want to assure you beforehand that it's not a contradiction, it's just, it's going to, you'll see what I mean. Let's, let's, Let's get in. So verse 17 says this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who create divisions and obstacles contrary to the teachings that you have learned. Avoid them. Now, this warning in verse 17 is, is to watch out, right? It, it, it's to be on alert. It, it's to look out for. It's to, to identify. And so as you see that, uh, you'll notice that the heart of this warning is actually to promote unity within the church. Now, how do we, how do we say that? Paul did not want the unity in the Roman church to be divided by divisive people. Okay, and so he doesn't want to see a type of unity that uh, in in this church ruined because of these types of people that he's warning the church about. But look at the end of that verse. See, he gives us a clue as to what we're supposed to do when we come across these types of people, these these false teachers, these these uh, people who cause divisions, right? And, and look what he says: When you come across these divisive or, or, or false teaching people, what are you supposed to do? Does Paul say to engage with them? Does he say to debate with them? Does he say to sit down and have a, a long, drawn-out discussion? He doesn't say that. At the end of the verse, he says to avoid them. Now, stay, that, another, another term for avoiding is stay away from. Now, the reason I say that this seems contradictory is because, on one hand, he cares so much for the unity of the church, but on the other hand, he's instructing the church to actually be divided, how, how, does that, how does that work out? How can, how can we, is he talking out of both sides of his mouth? We're, that's what we're going to unpack here. Okay, and so I want to actually start off this morning by, by showing you that Paul is actually making a call here for disunity, okay? And, 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 and so he says, when you spot such a divisive person, you're actually supposed to, and, and, and he's urging us, to divide from them, to avoid from them, to remove yourself from them. Now, uh, one, the first, there's, there's two reasons for this, okay? So the first reason is here. Uh, he gives you, he says, watch out for those people uh, who create obstacles contrary to the teaching that you have been taught, okay? And so does anybody here remember Andy's message uh, from a few months back where he was talking about the demon meat? Anybody remember that one? If you, if you don't remember that message, uh, it's from Romans 14. You can check it out on the KCC app it's, or on, on your Roku, uh, but it was awesome. Uh, but he basically said this. 
The idea was Paul was urging the church in Rome for everyone to be convinced in their, in their own mind. And they were talking about not letting minor issues divide people, okay? But in that, in that verse, in that, in that message, in that section of scripture, the, the teaching is not to divide from people. The teaching is to live your conviction and, and, and work out your convictions for the sake of the weaker believers, okay? But there, since there was no talk about that because in order to care for weaker believers, in order to consider the needs of others, you are, you kind of are, it already implies that there is unity there. It already implies that you care enough about the other person, that you're, that you're aligned with the teaching, that you're not trying to divide them away from the church. Uh, and, and because of your care for this person, you're actually looking out for their needs and their convictions. But Paul's approach in uh, chapter 16, verse 17, is completely different here. Why? Well, here Paul is identifying people who are teaching something that's contrary to the doctrine or the theology or the teaching of the church back in that day. And, and so it, it's easy to say, well, is that really what he meant, right? Because Paul's not saying, well, you know, you've got, you've got truth and, and I've got truth and we all have just a section of the truth. So if we get together, you know, we, we can work this out, right? Like that's, that's not what he's saying here. Paul is defining what true unity actually is. Unity is not simply gathering together. Unity is not simply blind to major issues and major theological gaps. And, and Paul's urging us that the only real unity that can be experienced in the church, the only way to truly be united, is, is a unity that's truth-based. A unity that's based on, on one teaching. A unity that's based on one message. And as a matter of fact, Paul cares so much for this truth-based unity that he actually calls in this verse for truth-based disunity. And that's why his, vo- uh, his warning is to avoid them. I don't know how Paul could be any clearer uh, in this verse. I don't know how the, the, the warning of, of love that he has for this church could be communicated any differently. But it's clear that without the common doctrine, it's clear without the common unification around the gospel that the church of Rome wouldn't have been united in the first place. So that's why Paul is willing to call for truth-based disunity. Listen to this quote from uh, A.W. Tozer. You can find it in the book, The Pursuit of God. Tozer says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same tuning fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to a standard to which each one must individually bow. So, 100 worshipers meeting together and looking to Christ are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be. Were they to become unity conscious, turn their eyes away from Christ, and strive for closer fellowship. This is the point that Tozer's making, and this is what Paul is echoing in this verse. We cannot have unity in name only. We can't be so passionate about unity that we become blind to the truth. We can't become so passionate about unity that we take our eyes off Jesus and start trying to create unity with the people around us. That is not the message. We must realize that there is a truth that someone can depart from. We must realize that when a person departs from doctrine or what the apostles taught or what the gospel teaches us or, or, or anything, anything that Jesus, any of his instructions for how to live, that dividing from a false teacher 
is actually promoting true unity within the church? And so the answer is that the only unity that really counts in the church is rooted in a common teaching, okay? And, and so here's what he says. Like I said earlier, when you come across something that's false, you label it, you name it, you avoid it. You've got to be able to scrutinize it. You've got to be able to identify it. You've got to be able to see what it is. And what that implies is you have to have sound doctrine. You have to be able to sift through the teaching and understand what's good and what's garbage. You have to be able to sift through and, and, and know the doctrine of man. You have to be able to know the human condition. You have to be able to know what Jesus' life means. And, and, and you have to know what he's called with the standard that he's holding us all to. But understand this. There's a very fine line between a helpful understanding of error and an exposure to error that sucks the life out of a well-meaning person. Okay? And so, so simply put, we don't want to be so familiar with all the false teachings in the world that we actually take our eyes off Christ to study them. We want to know the authentic thing for ourselves. So if you don't have a systematic theology book, go buy Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Read four pages a day. Understand what is the Bible. Understand what is the Holy Spirit. Understand all of these doctrinal things that unite what Christianity actually is. And know how to pick out falsehoods when you see them, when you hear them, when you encounter them, okay? Don't wait. Don't wait for next year when Andy gets up here and preaches a sermon on doctrine. Don't wait for your city group leader to, to you know, start a discussion around the table. We want to see people in city groups who are studying at home, who are asking great questions, and who can raise questions to their city group leaders so that if the city group leader doesn't know, they'll find the answer. And then everybody grows because we've learned together. We've, we've, we've united around what is actually truth, and we can have those dialogues. Because we say at city groups, life is better in circles than it is in rows. And so this week, next week, whenever your city groups uh, start up again, that's the point. The point is to sit shoulder and shoulder, face to face with people, and live life together, and understand truth together, and unpack God's instructions so that we can truly be united under the gospel. All right. But wait, there's more. We're still not done with verse 17. Because while Paul calls for truth-based disunity, he also calls for a second form of disunity uh, in the same verse. And, th and this is uh, how we're going to close out this verse, uh, because along with truth-based disunity, Paul actually is urging Christians uh, to maintain ethical-based disunity. That's why he says to avoid those who cause divisions. And so in, in, when, as I was reading through and prepping for this message, I found another passage from Paul where he actually it is a really exhaustive example of all of these ethical examples of reasons uh, to uphold ethical Christian unity in the church. Okay, so we're gonna, I'll show you uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. I'll read this. It's a pretty long list, but I think, I think you'll understand how this applies. Paul says, There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do 
with such people. Here's the point. Sound judgment is essential for survival, okay? When I take my wife out on a date night, I am not going to take her to a restaurant that from the curb looks like it's an FDA violation waiting to happen, all right? And fun fact, we, we, are, we recently went to a, uh, a staff retreat in L.A., and I was just going on the wormhole of YouTube, and I found out that L.A. actually has a version of a hot dog that they're famous for. Anybody know this? The L.A. dog? The locals call it a danger dog. Danger, Will Robinson, right? Uh, but you're, so when you go to L.A. the next time, think twice before you buy what the locals call the danger dog. Because when the L.A. Department of Health warns you that maybe, just maybe, leaving raw pig meat out in the sun for hours without refrigeration is the sort of thing that leads to food poisoning, no matter how good a bacon-wrapped hot dog looks, I think I'm going to pass. Okay? So, so there's, there's your public safety or uh, but 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 the, the principle of the matter is this you have to make judgments if you see a guy with a box of bacon cooking on a flat top grill on the side of the uh, on the side of the street you might not want to eat that bacon it's not in a refrigerator that's dangerous warning meat should be refrigerated right we don't want to get sick the same thing here there are people there are people that you're going to have to make sound judgments about based on the content of their character, okay? We see it in the movies. Harry Potter 1, if there's any Harry Potter fans in here. Harry Potter did it when he accurately judged Malfoy's character. Malfoy gets up there, publicly slanders the, the only friend that Harry had on the whole train ride as soon as they get to school. And what does Harry say? No thanks, I don't need you in my life. I can judge the right kind for myself, right? So if culture is defined as the beliefs the practices and, and, and the things that you believe in, the things you practice, and the things that you permit within, within a group, that is what Paul is urging the church to be united around. Paul is setting a standard for the church in Rome that has no room for pride, no room for disobedience, no room for unforgiveness, no room for slander, no room for conceit, no room for false teaching, and no room for causing divisions. And these are all acceptable ethical reasons to promote disunity within the church, to have nothing to do with these people, or as we see in Romans chapter 16, to avoid them. Now, I want to I I be sure to leave room here for obedience to the whole of Scripture and to the teachings from Romans chapter 12 that says that we should bless those who curse you and live peaceably with all, okay? So it's not just, you know, oh, you lied to me, you're out of here. That's, we're not shunning, no, no, no. The, the, there is a method here, okay? So we're going to define what we mean by avoid. We're going to define what we mean by have nothing to do with. How do we actually get there? We don't go from zero to 100, right? No, no. There's, there's a process, okay? In Galatians 2, when Paul and Peter had a disagreement, they didn't simply go to avoid. They had a, they had a confrontation. They talked to each other. They tried to have resolution in their relationship, right? Andy preached this a couple, like a month ago in Matthew 18. You go to the person... And the point of the confrontation is not to sit there and slander him in public like Malfoy did in the Harry Potter movie. It's to have a one-on-one, face-to-face, sit-down conversation with a person in an attempt to restore the relationship. Okay? And Paul is commanding with these words to avoid them. It's not a no-contact. Okay? It's not a no-contact rule. It's not a, you know, a restraining order against these people. But he's warning them to avoid the kind of contact that communicates that life can go on as usual, okay? Avoid that kind of contact here because if you, 
as a professing Christian, persist in departing from the teachings or the ethics of Scripture, what Paul is urging us to do is to say we can't hang out. We, I have to have nothing to do with you. I have to avoid you because you are uncorrectable, because you are unwilling to restore this relationship, because you're unwilling to live out the faith that you claim to have. The relationship with that person needs to be restored first, and if it can't, then the warning is to avoid. All right, I think I've uh, done pretty well on that first verse. Let's go into verse 18, which brings us to our second point. Point number two, warning against false teaching, okay? Uh, Verse 18 says this, For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. What could Paul possibly be talking about? Smooth talk and flattery? Like, Like, what is this? I think the reason that we have to be so vigilant over doctrine, the reason that we have to be able to understand label and identify false teaching when we hear it is because what Paul is saying is that oftentimes false teachers are not going to be these rash, you know, like, like hate speech, like in your face type of people. I'm sure there are some out there, but what Paul is saying, most of the time, these people are going to be really nice. They're going to be pleasant to be around. They're going to appear to be thoughtful. They're going to be really articulate. They're going to be really smooth talkers, right? And false teachers don't gain a following by being rough and harsh. They gain a following by being overly nice. They gain a following by flattering people. They gain a following through smooth talk, by making promises, right? By, by, by trying to win you over with your emotions rather than your attention to truth, rather than your attention to the things that he warned us about, the, the, the truth-based and the ethics-based, Right? So when you look at some of the nationally acclaimed preachers, I'm not naming names, but some of the people that go on the daytime talk shows, they've got New York Times bestseller lists. It's, it's almost like every single time I see one of these nationally acclaimed guys get on TV, I'm like, they always get asked some hot-button, Christian, divisive issue, and then they try to play both sides. They don't uphold the truth of Scripture. They don't take a stand for what God's Word says. They try to win everybody over with their smooth talk and flattery. And it's just like, like... I wish you would stand for the truth. Did you know that Paul actually had to deal with false teachers in his day? Anybody familiar with Paul's experience in uh, 2 Corinthians? These, uh, these false teachers were humorously referred to as the super apostles. Okay, In 2 Corinthians uh, chapters 11 and 12, don't worry, I'm not covering the whole thing. I'm going to give you a brief Set up the context here, right? But a brief overview of these two chapters. Uh, these were false teachers who were claiming to have superior apostolic authority to Paul. And in this particular example, uh, the reason that they were claiming superiority to Paul is they were bigging up their spiritual experiences with God. They were boasting about these visions and revelations that they were having from the Lord. And they were essentially saying, in a nutshell, since we hear from God and, and we share our insights from God, And Paul doesn't, you must listen to us. I clearly know what the Lord is saying, and he doesn't. I'm a super apostle. He's just a regular old apostle Paul, right? And so if you you study these two chapters at home and see uh, how much Paul despises the fact that this whole two-chapter-long interaction with these super apostles actually backs him into a corner that he doesn't want to be in. And I'm going to highlight for you uh, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 6 to 7. Paul says this, 
Because since they're, I'll just say, they're bigging up their experiences with God. And Paul's like, I don't want to have to do that. Right? And so look what he says. He says, even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth. But catch this. I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because these surpassingly great revelations. See, what they're doing is they're backing Paul into a corner and saying, we have these awesome experiences with God. Don't you? We're the super apostles. And this is, notice, in this, in this section, Paul is not saying, well, you might be a super apostle, but I'm a super, super apostle, right? Uh, you might have one amazing revelation with God every single week. Well, I've got two, so you've got to follow me. He's not doing that. He's not doing that. He doesn't want to fall into the comparison trap that these people are trying to, to woo him into. This is what he does. He wants the church to understand through, through uh, 2 Corinthians 12 that the experiences that the super apostles are claiming to have are completely different from the experiences that Paul has. He wants to separate his relationship with God. He wants to separate his understanding of intimacy with the Father from that which they are proclaiming. And what Paul is showing here is that one of the marks of people who have incredible experiences with God, one of the marks of people who have a close, intimate, personal relationship with God is the fact that they actually tend to refrain from talking about it. And that's why it's almost as if, if you, when you read this, it's like this experience has to get pulled out of him. Okay? And I've read, I've, as I'm studying this week, I've read a number of these examples over the, over the course of history. I've read a number of stories that, that echo this, that this wasn't just a one-time thing that happened to Paul. In Martin Lloyd-Jones' biography, The Fight of Faith, he talks about a, an experience he had in the summer of 1949. He was going through a season of burnout and depression. He had taken a break from preaching. He had taken a break from ministry. And uh, it, was a, it was an experience that he had with the Lord, between him and God, that he, he rarely spoke about. And he never spoke about it publicly, okay? And as a matter of fact, the only reason that we know about this experience is because he told his immediate family, and the biographer who wrote this book heard the story verbally from his family member. Let me read this to you from his biography. One morning around 6 a.m., he, Martin Lloyd-Jones, was in complete agony of soul and deeply conscious of the devil's presence in the room, of which he could not escape. Then as he started getting ready, his eye caught a word in a sermon which had been laying open beside his bed. It was the word glory. And then instantly, like a blaze of light, he felt the very glory of God surround him. Every doubt and fear was silenced, the love of God was shed abroad in his heart, and the nearness of God and his title of sonship filled him with overwhelming certainty, so much so that he was brought into a state of ecstasy and joy which remained with him for several days. There's another example of same type of occurrence from D.L. Moody, and he writes this, I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day, I can't describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. And I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Why would preachers, why would authors, why would pastors, why would teachers, why would the Apostle Paul 
have such an amazing encounter with God, lasting several days. And in D.L.'s Moody Moody's case, where he actually had to ask God, stop, it's too much, I can't handle it. And then they wouldn't talk about it. I mean, surely, it would help them sell a few thousand books. Might make a great sermon illustration. In today's day and age, it'd be a really, they'd get a ton of clicks on their blog. It'd be a, a super popular podcast episode, right? Why? What we find from the example of the Apostle Paul, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and D.L. Moody, with their experience is this. They had an experience of love and intimacy with God that was so sacred, so unique, so intimate between them and their father that it was actually better felt than spoken about. So what we see from 2 Corinthians is a warning that Paul is offering to the church. He's saying, don't fall for the super apostles. Don't fall for the flattery. Don't, talk for the, don't fall for the smooth talk. Don't fall for the comparison trap of these people who are going to elevate their experience and use that to elevate their superiority. Look at what happened to Paul when he was confronted by the false teachers. Look at, look, look at his example. He had to talk about an experience that he didn't want to talk about. What we need to learn is that whenever people boast openly about their experiences with God, their, their, these things that happen you know, behind closed doors, uh, whenever, whenever we come across something like that, we have to understand that at best, the experience that they're talking about is less than the experiences of Paul, of, of, of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and of D.L. Moody. Because what we find from a person who truly has an intimate and, and personal experience with God like this is they're actually filled with a sense of spiritual modesty. They don't want to talk about it. But they're also filled at the same, on the same hand they're filled with a sense of spiritual boldness. And this is what Moody writes. After his experience, he says this, My sermons were no different. I didn't present any new truths, and hundreds were still converted. But I would not go back to where I was before that experience, even if you offered me the world. And Paul, and Paul talks about this same motive in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians when he says, I refrain of speaking of this experience, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or what I say. Spiritual authority doesn't come from flattery. It doesn't come from lording your super apostleship over. It's shown that it should stem from your words and your actions. The truth that you uphold and the way that you live it. What you say and what you do. If someone truly has an experience with God, it should show in their character. They won't be divisive. They won't be prideful. They won't be greedy, slanderous, or conceited. They will stay away from those, from those things. Instead, they'll be a person with biblical ethic, integrity, which is doing the right thing even when it's hard, transparency, love, holiness, godliness, and Christ-like character. Those are the types of pastors and leaders that I want in my life. Those are the types of pastors and leaders that Paul is urging the church to follow. And those are the types of people that when you meet them and, you, and, you, and you're in city group with them and you're sitting around and you're like, wow, this person truly knows God. And I'll finish my point by saying this. If there's any young kids in the room, this will be like PG-10, so, you know, earmuffs on. But I spent my freshman year of college in UW-Platteville. And let me tell you, my eyes were open, my eyes and ears were open to a completely different world from the one that I grew up in, okay? And the culture... 
that I would describe in my, in my time in public school, public college, state, state school, was this. Endure the classes during the week, party hard on the weekend, okay? Platteville was a complete party school. I mean, they had, they had a whole street, which was nothing but frat houses, okay? And listen, there was nothing worse for an impressionable 18-year-old freshman in college than sitting in the cafeteria and listening to somebody at the next table over talk about an intimate experience that they had had with a girl over the weekend. There's nothing worse than a man, after being intimate with a woman, sitting there and bragging about it, boasting about it. Because what do we know? We know that the moment that the guy starts bragging up his experience, the moment that he starts boasting to all of his friends about all the good times that he had over the weekend, the moment he does that, you actually realize that no intimacy actually happened. You realize that th th there was nothing sacred there. It, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was a friends with benefits type of situation, right? Because when two people let the barriers down and reach that new level of intimacy, it's instinctive to hold that between those two people. It's instinctive to not to talk about it. And if that's true for our relationships, our human relationships, between a man and a woman, how much more true could that be in an intimate, loving relationship between us and our Father? That's why Paul didn't talk about his experience for 14 years. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones never wrote about his experience in Bristol. And that is the warning that Paul is offering from his experience with false teachers. Going back to Romans now, we can see why these false teachers are all into earthly things, are all into gratification on the human lover, are all into boasting about their relationship with God. Because their ultimate motivation is money, fame, ego, and worldly success. For such people, Romans chapter 16, verse 17, or verse 18, are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. We must not be deceived. We must not be naive to the, to the, the methods of false teachers. We must, Paul's offering a warning against people like this. Now, I, I will say this as, as, a, as a last point. There is a difference between a false teacher and someone who teaches something false, okay? Uh, as I was thinking about it, if, if, and I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be short with this, but uh, as I was thinking about it, you, you could probably go back in the archives and you could find a sermon. I, I know I was, I was thinking about this. In one of my sermons, I referenced a quote from John the Baptist about Jesus. And I had it on my page, and when I got up here and I said it, I actually said, Jesus said that quote about John the Baptist, okay? That, in that instance, yes, I was wrong. I, I quoted the Bible verse incorrectly, okay? But there's a difference between teaching something that's wrong and being a false teacher. And what is that difference? The difference is that a false teacher is uncorrectable. A dif the difference is that a false teacher will not listen to the sound doctrine, will not change their biblical ethic. They're unwilling to, to actually give in and rectify those things. Because those false teachers are so consumed with, with their appetite for success that they're actually blind to the very truths that they're trying to espouse. Okay? So, Paul says, has no, have nothing to do with such people. All right, point three, and ironically, this is my main point. Point three, ending in uh, verse 19, Paul talks about being innocent about what is evil. And if you've checked out, you know, I've gone, what? I've gone about 35 minutes so far, uh, and... I just want to say this. It's a good thing that Andy didn't have me uh, preach more of the Roman series 
or else we'd have more albums in our Empire series than Paul McCartney had in his whole music career, all right? So I, I just, yeah. Let's, let's dive into verse 19. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. What's interesting about the book of Romans is, excuse me, Paul actually echoes in this last chapter of Romans the same type of uh, encouragement that he opened up the book, the, 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 the book with the letter with in the first place, right? Because in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you. All your faith is spoken of throughout the entire world. He's repeating this truth, that the Roman church had a, had a renown. The Roman church had a reputation. Everybody knew about how great the church was in Rome. He wants people to know it. He wants people to believe it. He wants to praise the unity, that, the awesome people, and the intimacy that was in the church. But catch this. This encouragement, this, this, this line of saying, everyone has heard about your obedience, is actually a word of warning as well. Because Paul's essentially saying, I'm glad for your reputation, but it would be a tragedy because of your reputation if disunity was to come into your midst. So because of that, be wise about what's good and be innocent about evil. He's warning these people, don't develop an appetite for lies. Don't develop an appetite for comparison or false teaching. Stay away from it. Don't get involved. Run away. Uphold your integrity. Paul writes in Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, anything that's excellent or praiseworthy, think on those things. Let goodness occupy our minds. That's why we want to let, as he wrote in, in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly and to set our affections on things that are above and not the things that are in the earth. So Paul is urging them in this last verse to be familiar with wisdom, to be familiar with what's good, to set your mind on those things and be innocent about evil. What does Paul mean about innocent? How can we be innocent about evil? The Greek word used here is defined this way. Simple, unsophisticated, sincere, blameless, or unmixed. What could he possibly mean? How can we be innocent about evil? This is the same type of urge that, Paul, that, that God offered Adam and Eve in the garden when he warned them of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are some things in this life that are just not worth pursuing. There's no need to become an expert on all the evil in the world. And as, as uh, John MacArthur says, you don't need to study sin because practicing sin only makes you better at it. But how could I illustrate it for you this way? I, I, have, I have two examples for you this morning. If you're familiar with the Marvel Universe, there's this guy named Dr. Strange, okay, Stephen Strange, right? So the question that I want to leave you with this morning is, was his life really better after he became the Sorcerer Supreme? Was his life actually better? Because, because l- l- listen to this. He, he, sure, he got the magic powers. Sure, he was able to use his fingers again. Sure, he was able to, you know, you know, he was humbled, right? That was probably good for his character. But look at, look at what came into his life because of that. When he was just a surgeon, he didn't hold millions of realities in the palm of his hand in the form of a time stone, right? When, when, when he was just a, a, a normal old neurosurgeon, he didn't have to worry about Thanos, Dormammu, and dark forbidden magic that people could do and ruin the, the universe. And in the late, latest movie, the multiverse, right? 
He didn't hold all of that in his hand. That wasn't his responsibility. He was completely innocent to all of that. Likewise, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, was Frodo's life better after being the ring bearer? Right? If there was any other way that the ring could have been destroyed, Frodo's life could have been devoid of having to deal with the orcs, being able to deal with the ring rays, being able to deal with the immense emotional toil that came from being that ring bearer. But what happened to Frodo? It was the burden, the responsibility, and the wounding that came from his journey that was ultimately too much for him to bear. He couldn't stay in Middle-earth. He had to leave. He had to remove himself from all of that evil that had surrounded himself for, the, for his whole life. Because in The Lord of the Rings, Frodo carried the one hope for salvation. Frodo carried the one way to ensure that the world around him would not experience the evil that had consumed the world that he knew. So he was forced to make decisions which altered his destiny and left him with unimaginable scars. Yet, yes, he was the hero, but you see how that burden ultimately changed him. Likewise, we who have already had our eyes opened to the appetites of evil in life, right? To our sin nature, to all the wrongdoings that manifest itself every single day. We understand our need for a savior. We understand our need to be freed from the evil that surrounds us. We understand our need for a hope that can't be found in any of the good that we merit. The hope that can't be found in anything that we do because we know we're not perfect. That's why we, like Frodo, need to, are, are longing, for, for those of us who know Christ, we're longing to reach the undying lands just as he did. When our sin nature will be removed from us, when, when as they say in Revelation 21, every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. That's the innocence about evil that Paul wants us to have as followers of Christ. God did not intend for us to live with the consequences of sin. He intended us to be free from that. And the promise of the gospel and our hope of salvation through Jesus alone is this, that even in spite of our, our imperfections, we know how the story ends. The gospel offers us hope that one day our faith will be sight. The gospel offers us hope that the ultimate hero of the story will not perfect us because we exceeded at being wise about what's good. That's not the promise. The promise is not that when you're wise about goodness, when you're, when you're innocent about evil, then you're saved. That's not the gospel. The gospel is this. Jesus saves us, not because we're perfect, but because he was perfect. Being wise about what is good doesn't save you. It's Jesus alone that saves. And today, if you're in this room, and you're carrying burdens from, from sins, past, present, or future, and you're being weighed down by those things that, that, that mark you, those, those things that, that you just can't escape from, those things that make you feel hopeless, place your faith, place your hope, and place your trust for eternal security in the arms of Jesus. Don't try to earn your way into heaven by being good enough. Don't try to, to perfect yourself enough that you think you're gonna, your good will outweigh your bad. Because we have hope. Listen to this from Ephesians 1. God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be homely, holy and blameless before him. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. It's God's grace 
God's grace is the whole reason that we're here to celebrate in the first place. It's God's grace that leads us to the cross. It's God's grace that leads us to worship. It's God's grace that leads us to a place that we can say we're not perfect and we need a Savior to stand in the gap for us. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus lived a life that we couldn't live. That's why Jesus chose freely to go to the cross to die a death that we should have died for all of the wrong in our life so that he could make a way, so that he could pay our sin debt in full once and for all and remove that from us. And the promise of the gospel is this, that when you put your faith and hope in Jesus, when you put your trust for eternal security in him alone, you will be saved. So with every head's bowed and eyes closed, if you're sitting here this morning and you haven't placed your, your faith in Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I'd just like to see you raise your hand real quick and say, yeah, you know what? I've never put my faith, my hope, my trust in Jesus, and I want to do that today. Is there anybody here that's making that? And if you're online, uh, you can just uh, type in the chat, and we'll, we'll connect you with some resources. <clears throat> awesome. Well, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for anyone making that decision, and it, I, I don't want you to echo the prayer just because I'm saying it, but... This is just helping you to communicate what's going on in your heart with, with God the Father. And you say, Father, thank you for making me. I understand that uh, because you're perfect and I'm not, we're completely different. We're separated. A good, perfect, holy uh, God cannot exist with sin. Thank you so much for your son who made a way for me that anyone who believes in him shall not perish but would have eternal life. I want to put my faith, I want to put my hope, I want to put my trust in him today. I want to follow Jesus as my hope for salvation, knowing that it's ultimately through his work, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, that I'll be saved. I believe in you now, and I'm excited to follow you, and I'm going to choose to follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're not done. We're not done. Because there are people in this room that needed to receive salvation today, that admitted their need for God right now, but there are also people in this room that understand where their faith has brought them thus far, that understand this, that if you've already chosen to place your faith in Jesus, you have a full understanding of Paul's instruction here, okay? Because it's only after salvation that that internal struggle between sin nature and righteousness actually begins. I want you to be wise about what's evil and innocent or I want you to be wise about what's good and innocent about what's evil. Okay? Billy Graham illustrates uh, this battle this way. He says, An Eskimo fisherman came to town every Saturday afternoon, bringing two dogs with him. One was brown, the other was black. He taught them to fight on command. And every Saturday afternoon, the town square, people would gather around and the dogs would fight and the fishermen would take bets. On one Saturday, the black dog would win. On the next Saturday, the brown dog would win. But every Saturday... The fisherman won. And his friends began to ask, how do you do it? And he said this, I starve one and feed the other. The one I feed always wins because he's stronger. Billy Graham's story about these two dogs is appropriate because it illustrates something about the inner warfare that comes into our life when we put our faith in Jesus. It illustrates that we have two natures, both struggling for mastery. And the question that I have for the people who believe in Jesus this morning is which one are you going to feed? 
For the Christians, Paul's urging us, feed your, feed your study of Scripture. Pursue what's good. Be innocent. Be blameless. Starve those evil desires inside of you. Right? Starve that sin nature. So three questions. You're going you're gonna to have to write these down. I, I don't have a slide for it, but that's okay. You've, you've got smartphones. Application question number one. What desire do you need to starve? Gossip, pride, anger, greed, whatever it is, fill in the blank. What desire do you need to starve? Do you need to just cut something out? I'm done. This has taken over my life. I need to be innocent about what's evil. I need to stop subjecting myself to all of this, this, you know, whatever. What do you need to starve? Number two, are there any influencers that you need to have nothing to do with? Right? It could be a TikTok channel that every time you get it, it just brings you down. I was reading this study um, from one of the newspapers I, I read online. They were saying that uh, they made these fake accounts pretending to be 13-year-old girls on TikTok. And literally, uh, as soon as they clicked on one uh, mental health thing about anxiety, depression, whatever, uh, every 30 seconds, these researchers who were pretending to be 13-year-old girls on TikTok were getting inundated with messages of uh, suicide, of depression, of anxiety, of all of these negative things. And they were shocked, right? Are there, are there just some, some channels that are in your life that you just need to cut out? It's not benefiting you. You don't need to study all, the, all, all, all this junk. Study the gospel. Just, just cut those influences. Have nothing to do with them. And then the third question. Do you need to know doctrine? Do you need to study? Do you know God's word? Are you, are you able to identify false teaching? Do you know the teaching that Paul's referring to from verse 17? If you need to start studying, just do it. Right? Because then, then you'll be able to discern the false teaching for yourself. You won't get wrapped up in all of this stuff and, and Paul's word of warning will apply to you because you'll be able to identify falsehood when you see it. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.